Now, friends, as we come to this little book of Habakkuk, and I dare say that this is a little book that you haven't heard many sermons from it. I began preaching on it about, oh, I suppose, somewhere around 35 years ago. And I used to ask congregations if they'd ever heard a sermon on Habakkuk. When I first started out, no one had ever heard a sermon on Habakkuk. But I find today that there are many preachers that have found their way to this little book. And it's one of the many of these so-called minor prophets, but every one of them is a major leaguer, as we found out. Now, we've put together here Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And they have a great deal in common. Each one will give a different facet of the dealing of God with mankind, both in the way that the government of God is, as it were, integrated into the government of man, and also God's dealings with the individual. So that is one of the important things about putting these three little books together. Another way in which they are quite similar, actually, they all come from approximately the same period. In fact, they could all have been contemporary, and the possibility is that they were. But it's very difficult to nail down to a specific date many of these prophets. In fact, many of the books of the Bible, you can't come up with an exact date always. And the reason is that that's really not the important thing. But obviously, Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah all fit into a period between Josiah and Jehoiakim. And in that same period, you have Jeremiah also. He fits into this period. The northern kingdom had gone into captivity, and the southern kingdom was right on the verge of it. And after Josiah... Every king after him was a bad king. In fact, they abused the title of being a bad king. So we have to follow along here by putting these three in the same time capsule, and they apparently belong together. They're rather contemporary. Now Habakkuk, though, is certainly different from the others. He's different from Nahum. Nahum dealt with just one nation, Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And God was right in judging them, and not only right, that God was just and righteous and a God of love. And still he could judge them, because he is all three. Now Habakkuk approaches this problem from a little different viewpoint. Here's a man that's got problems. And his problem was that he thought that God was doing nothing about the iniquity of his own people. And it disturbed him. He says, why don't you do something? And I'm of the opinion that a great many people feel very much the same way about, well, why doesn't God move in the affairs of man today? Why doesn't God do something about the condition that is in the world today. 
in our own nation. Why doesn't God move in? Why is he permitting man to get by with so much? Well, we're going to find out that was the problem of Habakkuk. In fact, his problem was multiplied. God answered that question for him and said to him, I'm preparing a nation that's going to come and take this nation into captivity. Unless they change their ways, they'll go into Babylonian captivity, and I'm preparing Babylon. Now, if you think he had a problem before, he's got one now. And the problem is, why will you use Babylon, a nation that's definitely more wicked than your own people, more pagan than your own people, more given to idolatry and to sin than your own people, and you're going to use them to punish your people? God said, yes, that's what I'm going to do. But you see, God says, I'm not through with Babylon. I will judge Babylon then. And this is my method. Now, this man is quite an interesting man that's before us, Habakkuk. He's written a lovely little book here. In fact, there have been many that have had a great deal to say about the literary excellence of the little book. In fact, the last chapter, there are not but three here, but the last chapter, chapter 3, is actually a song or a psalm of praise and adoration to God. And it's actually a very beautiful thing. And the book is very important as far as the New Testament is concerned. Now, I think it's generally conceded that the three great doctrinal books of the New Testament are Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. And all three of these books in the New Testament, we find that all three quote from Habakkuk. The fact of the matter is that all of them quote from it and make that the background of their message. We'll see that when we get to it. And that verse, by the way, is verse 4 in chapter 2. The just shall live by faith. And that is in the little book of Habakkuk. So this little book looms up on the horizon of Scripture as being very important. And don't let the brevity of it deceive you, because it becomes all important. It's not really how much you say, it's what you say. And so here we see that. Now, his name means love's embrace. And did you know that that's about all we know about Habakkuk? That is, his personal life. He tells us nothing about himself, and he doesn't even date his book. Now, Many of the prophets said they prophesied during the reign of so-and-so, king of Israel or king of Judah. And you can, of course, pinpoint them, but Habakkuk doesn't even help us out that much. Martin Luther, he gave a very striking definition of the name Habakkuk, which means love's embrace. And I'd like for you to hear this. Habakkuk signifies an embracer, or one who embraces another, takes him into his arms. He embraces his people and takes them in his arms. That is, he comforts them 
and holds them up as one embraces a weeping child, to quiet it with the assurance that if God wills, it shall soon be better. It's a very wonderful quotation, by the way, and reveals something also of the heart of Martin Luther. You can understand why Martin Luther, who had been a monk, why he married. He was a very romantic individual, by the way. And this statement here reveals that. Now, this is all, actually, that's known of the writer, except another thing that we'd like to add ourselves to this. And that is, I call him the Doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. Actually, he had a question mark for a brain. His book is really quite unusual. It's not a prophecy in the strict sense of the term. He's very much like the book of Jonah in the sense that he gives his own experience. And his experience is that he had a question, and he didn't have the answer for that question. And the answer that he finally got created a bigger question than he had before. He's really a doubting Thomas. I'd frankly probably should turn that around and say it like this. The apostle Thomas is the Habakkuk of the New Testament, because the little book of Habakkuk reveals a man that was certainly one with a real hang-up, and he wanted an answer to his questions. He was born in the objective case and in the past pluperfect tense and in the subjunctive mood, and you write over him an interrogation point, That is a question mark. Finally, though, when you come to the last chapter, and especially the last two or three verses, then you can put down an exclamation point. But the little book has over it written a question mark. And that's what the man had for a brain. And the question is, why? Why? And I think that you can reduce the doubt of Thomas, in the New Testament or a backup in the Old Testament are the question that men have today into one word, why? And I think this is fundamentally the question of the human race. You remember Job, the oldest book that we believe we have in the Scripture. You can write over the entire account there, why? Why did Job have to suffer? That was his question. And believe me, I think it's your question, and it's mine. We can reduce all questions to the lowest common denominator, and it's basic to all questions. Why? Why didn't God do something about the evil in the land of Israel? Why didn't God begin to judge his people? And that's a question that is sometimes raised today. So you see, it's Almost the opposite question from Nahum, because God was moving there. And there would be those that raised the question, how can he be a God of love and judge as he did? And here, it's the opposite. Why doesn't God do something about the evil that is in the world? Now, may I say that I believe the closing statement in the little book here, it says, For the chief musician on my stringed instrument, 
And that reveals, of course, that this is a song. And that was put there for the orchestra leader and for the director of the choir. And this last chapter, as we've said, is a song. It's a psalm. And the entire prophecy is really a gem of beauty. And let me say this relative to what others have said about it, because maybe a moment ago you thought I was waxing eloquent about the beauty of this little book. But it's impressed others. Dalich wrote, His language is classical throughout, full of rare and select turns and words. And Morehouse wrote, It is distinguished for its magnificent poetry. Now, this little book, it opens in gloom, it closes in glory. It begins with an interrogation point, and it closes with an exclamation mark. Habakkuk is a big why. Why God permits evil is a question that every thoughtful mind has faced. And I think this book is the answer to the question, will God straighten out the injustice of the world? Well, this book answers the question, is God doing anything about the wrongs of this world today? Well, this book says that he is. And the book is the personal experience of the prophet told in poetry as Jonah was told in prose. Now, the theme of the book is faith. Habakkuk has been called the prophet of faith. And that great statement in 2.4, the just shall live by faith, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 10.38. When we come to it, we'll give an explanation of that. Now, as we get into the little book, I'd like to give you my outline of it that we have in our notes and outline that we send out. In chapter 1, you have the perplexity of the prophet. Now, in chapter 2, you have the perspicuity of the prophet. Now, I could have said the perception of the prophet, but that wouldn't have sounded as big, you know, and as learned as to say the perspicuity of the prophet. But it really is the perception of the prophet. Now, in chapter 3, we have the pleasure of the prophet. Now, this is a remarkable little book, you see, dividing as it does in this way. Now, we come to chapter 1. Chapter 1, the first problem of the prophet, and that's in the first four verses. Why does God permit evil? That's it. That's the question. God's answer, that's in verses 5 through 11. God was raising up the Chaldeans to punish Judah because God will punish sin. And then the third division here is the second problem of the prophet, which was greater than the first. Why would God permit his people to be punished by a nation that's more wicked than they are? Why did he not destroy the Chaldeans? Well, that's our problem, and that was his problem, and now it's going to be our problem to look at it. Now, let's look at Habakkuk, the man with problems. And we'll begin with verse 1 now of chapter 1. And I'm reading, "...the burden which Habakkuk, 
the prophet did see. Now, I want to say just a word about the pronunciation, because you probably have heard a different pronunciation of this. But you will find that this is the one I'm giving is the generally accepted pronunciation. But I also want to add just this word. The names in the Old Testament especially, and it would apply to them, the syllable on which the emphasis should be placed, actually is not really a matter of rule or rote. Your pronunciation may be just as good as the next one. And actually, it's been almost arbitrary how you pronounce some of the words in the Old Testament. And every now and then, I get a letter of someone trying to correct me on a name in the Old Testament, so I'm going to beat you to it here with a back of, don't write in and tell me that it should be pronounced at Habakkuk, because actually that is not the better one, or I should say the generally accepted one. Now, if you want to call him something else, that's all right. Just so we all understand who we're talking about in many of these names, why, that's the important thing. And to put down any hard and fast rule of pronunciation in the Old Testament, that is something that, very frankly, is not all important. So if you find yourself disagreeing or pronouncing a word different than someone else, don't be disturbed by it, and you don't have to change to their pronunciation, because yours is just good as theirs. Because, actually, there are certain words that you have generally accepted. Pronunciation here, Habakkuk, is the generally accepted. But the other one, I wouldn't argue with you a minute. But don't try to correct me on it, because I already know about the other pronunciation, but I just don't use that, because I don't think that it is really the better one. Now, it's the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. Now, the burden here means, actually, the judgment. This is the judgment which Habakkuk the prophet did see. And it's not so much the question that he asks here, but rather it's the Lord's answer. And the Lord's answer is really the prophecy. And it is the burden and it is the judgment, and that is the way that it fits into the picture. Now, let me read verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear, even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save? Now, he is telling the Lord, actually, that God is refusing to answer his prayer. He cries out in a night of despair as he sees violence and that God is doing nothing about it and apparently he's saying nothing. This is the elegy of Habakkuk. And it will conclude, however, the book with praise with a note of joy. But if you have a question, my feeling is that you ought to take it to the Lord as this man did and you'll get an answer from God if you're sincere in the question that you take to him. Now, he goes on, and his question is a big why. Verse 3, Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, 
and there are those who raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slack, and justice doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore justice goeth forth perverted. Now, here's his question, why? In other words, he's saying, why does God permit his people to continue and to increase in iniquity, in injustice, in strife, in contention and violence, and do nothing about it. And this is a capital why. Why? Now, this is an old question, and it's a new question. It's one that you could ask today. Now, let's look at it in detail. This man, as we suggested, wrote somewhere during the time of Josiah R. It was after Josiah. He was the last good king. And there was Jehoahaz. He was a bad one, but he didn't last but three months. And Jehoiakim came along and reigned 11 years, and he was a bad one. Now, it was a time of disintegration, deterioration, and degradation in the kingdom. There was a breaking down of law the Mosaic law. And it was a time when men, of course, were turning away from God. Why? Now, you can boil this down. Why does God permit evil? Why does he permit evil? I was back east in a conference several years ago, and at this conference there were two young men there. One was a professor in Vanderbilt University, and both of these young men were brilliant young men. The other was a young professor from Missouri, and he told me that this is the method that was used by the unbelieving professor or teacher. And both of these young men, by the way, were believers. A godless professor would use this method to try to destroy the faith of young people in the integrity of the Word of God. And the old bromide was this. They would start off like this. You do not believe that a God of love would permit evil in the world, do you? Do you think a God of love and a loving God, kind in heart, would permit suffering in the world? In other words, they'd destroy confidence in God. Then they destroy confidence in the Word of God. Now, the enemy used that same method with Eve. You mean to tell me, the serpent said, that God does not want you to eat of that tree? Why, that tree is the most delicious tree in the garden, and it would open your eyes, and you'd become like gods. And I can't believe that a good God would want you to not eat of that tree. I just can't understand that destroying, you see, a belief in God, whether he's good or not. That is always the method that is used. Now, look at this specific question of Abaca, how it fitted into the local situation of his day. People were getting by with sin. God was doing nothing. At least Habakkuk thought he was doing nothing. And his question is, why doesn't God do something about sin? Why doesn't God judge the wicked? Why does God permit evil men and women to prosper? And 
isn't that a good question? Isn't that a question that you would ask today? I'm sure that many of God's people have said, why doesn't God move today? Why does he permit all this evil in our nation? Why does he permit the rich to get by with it? And why is it that the average person is having to bear such a burden? The average person pays the taxes. The average person is the one that when gasoline either went up or rationed or whatever happens, who pays for it? The rich don't pay. I mean, they pay, but they have it to pay. And they never suffered in World War II. Why doesn't God do something about it? Isn't that your question? May I say to you, that was David's question. The fact of the matter is, it almost robbed David of his faith. David said this in Psalm 73, 2, But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Well, David said, I looked around me, and who is it that's prospering? It's the wicked. Why doesn't God do something about it? And that was the question of Habakkuk. Now God says, I'm not letting you get by with sin. You think I'm doing nothing? Well, I'm preparing a nation down yonder on the banks of the Euphrates River. And when the appointed time comes, and my people don't turn to me, I'm going to turn the Babylonians loose. And they came, and the record of their destruction of Jerusalem is something that was fierce and terrible. And it was almost unspeakable, the things that they did when they took these people captive. That's really raised a question for this man, Habakkuk. If you think he had a question before, he's really got a question now. And he says, my people have been engaging in violence, but they haven't seen anything yet. Nebuchadnezzar came three times against Jerusalem. The final time he came, he burned the city and also the temple. He took them into captivity. These people that had actually, at least Habakkuk said, well, God's not doing anything. And you remember the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes says, because judgment against that which is evil is not executed speedily, the heart of the sons of men is in them to do evil. You see, the first time they did evil, they wondered maybe lightning would strike them and that sort of thing. I remember the first time as a boy that I swiped watermelons. It was in the summertime, and a storm was coming up. And time I pulled off a watermelon and started to the fence with it, there was a flash of lightning and a clap of thunder, the like of which that you can only have in southern Oklahoma. And I want to tell you, I thought the Lord is judging me right there for what I'd done. But the day came that I discovered that wasn't judgment from God, and I could do that sort of thing with no fear whatsoever. When I was a boy, the sins that are committed out in the open today, they were committed then. This idea that human nature is changed, human nature is just exactly like it was when I was a boy. Now, the difference is this, that what people used to do in secret and undercover and in the backyard 
They now do in the front yard and out in the open. They don't mind sinning openly. Now, there hasn't been any improvement. I heard a couple that was being interviewed. They're not married. They live together. And everybody there was commending them for their honesty. And I'd like to know what kind of honesty they were attempting to commend them for. May I say to you, it is true that when I was a boy growing up, that when anybody did that, they did it undercover. It wasn't brought out in the open. Now they bring it out in the open. Does that make sin any different? Does that change the fact that that sort of thing is sinful and wrong in the sight of God? Well, it's still the same type of a sin. And that's what had happened in the nation Israel. I think the first time that they broke the Ten Commandments, they shuddered. They wondered if judgment wouldn't come immediately and fire wouldn't come down. But you see, because execution against an evil work isn't performed speedily, the hearts of the sons of man, it's in them to do evil, and it causes them to go on and on into sin. And we're living in a day when the average person does not believe in the judgment of God. They're like Habakkuk was. Habakkuk says, I've prayed that you'll do something about my nation. They're in sin, and they get worse and worse, and it's flagrant now. It's out in the open, and there's evil, there's violence, there's gross immorality, and God's doing nothing about it. Well, don't you feel that way today about the way conditions are? Is God doing anything about it today? Doesn't look that way, does it? Why, it even caused a group of theologians up in New England to come up with the idea, which is not new, of course, that God is dead, that he's not around. And they actually mean there'd never been a God, and there is no God. That's what they were trying to say. Why? Because he's not interfering in the affairs of man. But isn't he interfering in the affairs of men? Isn't God overruling today? Isn't he moving? He permitted us to go through a time of affluence. And people got careless. Even God's people got careless. Now we are wondering whether we're going to exist or how much longer we're going to exist as a nation. The question is asked, is God doing anything about evil? God says, I am. He says to Habakkuk, you thought I wasn't doing anything? Well, you didn't know about it, but down on the banks of the Euphrates River is one of the most brutal nations. And when the time comes, they're going to come up here. I'm preparing them. And they're going to come up here and take my people into captivity because they don't get by with sin. You thought I didn't answer your prayer. You thought I wasn't doing anything about sin. I'm doing plenty about sin. And I think that If you today could see back of the scenes and actually see what God is doing, it would terrify you at this very moment. That if you could see that God is actually moving against our own nation, and I think he definitely is today, moving against a nation that at one time had a knowledge of him. Oh, I'll admit it was superficial, and the Bible was held in reverence. Very few people knew much about it, but nevertheless, the Word of God is held in reverence. It's ignored today, absolutely despised by the nation. Oh, they take an oath by putting their hand on it when they go into office, and then they forget about what's on the inside. May I say to you, friends, is God doing nothing today? 
Well, I rather think he is. And I think it would frighten you and me right now if you and I really knew how much he is doing about it. And it was during the reign, apparently, of these last evil kings, and they weren't enforcing the law. Lawlessness abounded. Wickedness was on every hand. And people seemed to be getting by with it. And the nation seemed to be getting by with it. And this disturbed Habakkuk. The man is upset over it. He has a very tender heart. He hates to see his people being burdened down as they were burdened down. Look around you at what's happening in the world and what's happening in our own nation, what's happening in your own state. I have a notion it's about the same as my state. Politicians all express a great concern for me. They are going to reduce my taxes, and they've gone up every year. They tell me that they've got a great concern for me, and they are thinking of me in Washington and thinking of me in Sacramento, and they're thinking of me in Los Angeles. Well, I get the impression they're not thinking about me at all. They seem to be thinking about themselves. We're living in the same kind of a day. Wickedness abounds today. Who are you going to believe? Why doesn't God do something about it? Why doesn't God move in on the nation? Well... That was Habakkuk's question. This man had a very tender heart. And may I say to you, God says, i got an answer for you. And God's got an answer for you today if this is your question. God says, you know, Habakkuk, when I tell you what I'm really doing, it's going to be difficult for you to believe it. Because instead of doing nothing, I'm doing a great deal. fact of the matter is, Finally, Habakkuk is going to ask God not to move so fast when he finds out how fast he is moving and how many things he's doing. And so God says to him, I want you to know that among the nations I move. And in spite of all the lawlessness and the war and the sin in all the nations, God says, I'm overruling. I'm moving. And I'm moving in judgment. How is he going to do it? Now, God's going to give him the answer here. God's doing something about it, and actually, it's going to raise a bigger question for Habakkuk, but he sure found out God was doing something. Will you listen to verse 5? He says, "...behold among the nations, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you." In other words, God is saying to him here, Open your eyes and look about you. I'm doing something about it. In fact, get a world view. Get a perspective of what I'm doing. And if you look about you, you'll see that things are happening. One great crisis after another has taken place. The great Assyrian Empire in the north has been overcome, has been conquered, and Nineveh, the capital, has been destroyed. And now there is rising there on the banks of the Euphrates River a kingdom that will be known as the Great Babylonian Kingdom. And they have already marched into Egypt. And the Battle of Carchemish has taken place. And Nebuchadnezzar is victorious. And he's becoming now a great world power. Now, you think I'm not doing anything? God says, I'm busy. I'm very much involved 
in all of this. I'm not sitting on the 50-yard line watching this little world. I happen to be involved in it. There's one viewpoint, you know, that is held even by those who believe in a God, that the creation of God is like a clock, that God created it and wound it up, and then he went off and left it. And then, of course, the other viewpoint, the opposite from that is pantheism. God is just the sum total of everything. Well, neither view, of course, is a scriptural view. The fact of the matter is, creation is not a clock. God is not strapped down by earth's red tape today. He's not a part of it by any means. He's able to move today. You probably remember the Greek mythology about when the Greeks were taking the city of Troy and Laocoon was the priest. He made a false move, and he and his sons were attacked by serpents. And you remember that they just absolutely enmeshed these men. Actually, the serpents, as they twined around them, just choked them to death, just broke every bone in their body. Well, God is not involved in his creation to that extent, where he is subject to it, and that he has to make certain moves and certain plays because it's forced upon him. God is not involved like that. God is moving in a sovereign way in the universe, and he was doing something about it, by the way. And so he says here, "...behold among the nations and regard." He says, "...I'll work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you." And Paul in the great sermon that he gave in Antioch of Pisidia. I've always felt that that was one of the greatest sermons that Paul preached, and yet very little attention is paid to it today. I draw from it from time to time. And actually here in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts at verse 41, and I'm going to move back and begin reading at verse 38. It says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despise us, and wonder, and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. And he's quoting there in that 41st verse. He's quoting from the 5th verse of the first chapter of Habakkuk. I never would have believed that it could be used quite like that, but Paul used it like that. In other words, he's saying God has provided a salvation. And that took place, as he said on another occasion, this thing was not done in a corner because Jews from all over the world were there and they carried that word everywhere that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross and that the word was around that he was raised from the dead and that on the day of Pentecost and there they're back there again 
and the Holy Spirit comes upon this little group, and multitudes are saved at that time and succeeding days. Now, that word went out, and the world ignored it. The Roman world ignored it at first. And Paul is saying, God has worked a work. And today, the world says, well, why doesn't God do something about it? My friend, God has done something about it. 1,900 years ago, he gave his son to die. He intruded into the affairs of the world. And he says that he's going to intrude again in the affairs of the world. And today, the world just goes merrily along its ways, picking daisies and having a good time. It's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. In fact, you will die. Well, friends, may I say to you, God is moving. And it's marvelous how Paul used that passage of Scripture. Now, God says specifically, what I'm doing is this. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Look around, he said. Down there on the banks of the Euphrates River, there is rising a nation that will become the first great world power. And you can check with Daniel on that, that it became a great world power. It's the head of gold. It is the four beasts. It's the lion. It's number one on God's hit parade of the great nations of the world. And they had a great civilization there. Now God says, I'm raising up that nation. Now will you listen? For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They're going to take your land from you. Now, this is something that I want to tell you was a shock to Habakkuk that this might take place. And the thing about what we have here is a pretty good description of the Babylonian empire. They're depicted here. They're a bitter, a hasty nation, hot-headed, marching to world conquests. And they took this city of Jerusalem, as we said last time, he took it three times, and the third time he burned it to the ground. Now, in verse 7, "...they are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed from themselves." In other words, they rely upon themselves. They have great self-confidence, and they were great boasters. They depended upon their own power. And this is something that Nebuchadnezzar founder of this great empire. You will recall that that was his problem. In fact, the matter is, it was a form of insanity here. He suffered from egomania. I think the psychiatrists today would call it hysteria, that sort of a manic depressive psychosis that this man had. Why, there came a time he didn't even know who he was. Went out and ate grass. And by the way, Habakkuk suggests that here. But he describes, as we saw last time, their horses also are swifter than leopards. The Babylonians majored in the cavalry. And they're more fierce than the evening wolves. And I tell you, hungry wolves. Remember in the early days in West Texas, when a snow had fallen, you had to be careful when you got out because... My dad said you'd always have to shoot one of the wolves. And when he did, and blood began to flow, they'd all turn on that wolf and eat him. And the men, or whoever the human beings were, 
that were traveling, then they'd have an opportunity to get away. Now, he describes them here, and he says they'll spread themselves, and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly like the eagle that hasteth to eat. They're just like hungry animals and ferocious birds they seize upon their prey. And that was the story of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Verse 9, they shall come all for violence. Now, that is very interesting to note that. What was it that Habakkuk said that he saw among his own people? Violence. That's one of the things that characterize the sin. Well, God says, I'm going to give you a good dose of violence. In other words, chickens will come home to roost. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And you're going now to know what violence really is. And then the translation that the New Schofield Bible has here is very good. The set of their faces is forward, and they shall gather the captives as the sand. In other words, they have one purpose in view, and that is to capture as many nations and as many peoples as they can and make slaves of them. And that's what they did to the southern kingdom of Judah. Verse 10 and they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Now, if you'll notice here, they scoff at the other kings. In other words, they trust their own strength, their own heathen gods, and with arrogance, just as the Assyrians before them they marched through the earth. That is the picture that's given to us here. Now, will you notice in verse 11 it says, Then shall his mind change. Well, believe me, that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I'm not going to take time to turn back to Daniel because we've been over that once. But you will recall when we studied the book of Daniel in the fourth chapter that there came a day when Nebuchadnezzar made the statement, isn't this great Babylon that I have built? And he's so lifted up with pride. He's an egomaniac. And there are a few of those around today, too, trusting himself, not trusting God. Now, again, let me say this. Today, our nation lacks humility. There's no question about that. May I just say this? It's a form of insanity. Today, that is abroad. You hear this political party and that political party. This is not peculiar to just one, but to all today. They boast of what they can do or have done. And they point the finger of guilt to the other fellow. But that's the problem with America today. We depend on our own strength, our own power, our own ability. And you see it working itself out today. I actually turn off certain TV programs because I'm tired of listening to individuals boasting of their accomplishments, which are not very much. And the accomplishments, I think of a great many today, their boasting sounds like a mountain. But what they've done is about as big as a mouse. What a picture that you have here and a picture of Babylon, by the way. Now, this had a tremendous effect 
upon this man Habakkuk. If you think he had a problem before, he's got a problem now, and I mean a real problem. And his real problem is this. God, I thought, wasn't doing anything. And now I see that he is doing something, but he's not doing what I thought he would do. And he's doing it differently than I thought he would do it. In other words, his question now is, why would God use the Babylonians, who were more wicked than Judah was, than God's people were, why would he use a nation that's more wicked than they were to punish those that were less wicked? Why would God do that? Well, that same problem we had back in Isaiah, you remember. God says, O Assyrian, a rod of mine anger. God says, I'm going to take the Assyrian and use him like a whip. And I'll use him to chastise the northern kingdom. And he did. But God says, then I'm going to judge the Assyrian. And God did. Now, you have the same thing here. God says, I'm going to use the Babylonians to chastise my people. And when I'm through, I'm going to judge Babylon. And God did that. God moves in the affairs of men today. But the problem there is this. How can a holy God use a sinful nation like that? And this may be a new thought for some of you. I've heard this, and I've heard it from pulpits. Well, you know, God would never let Russia overcome the United States because we are the fair-haired boy. We represent the good guys. We happen to be the fine people. We are the ones that send out missionaries. And Russia is godless, so God would never use Russia to chastise us. My friend, may I say to you today, the thing that will make your hair stand on end if you believe the Word of God, God has followed a method of taking a sinful nation to judge a people that are less sinful. Now, if you don't like it, take it up with the Lord. Don't take it up with me. But that's what's in the Word of God here. Now, that was Habakkuk's problem. Why would God use Babylon to chastise his people? Now, God's going to answer that question. And God has a pretty good answer for it, by the way. Now, friends, we have come here to verse 12. And here is the second question of Habakkuk. You see, the first question God has answered. The problem with this man Habakkuk is, it just looks, as I look around me, that God's not doing anything about evil at all. He seems to be very complacent. He seems to have withdrawn from the scene, and nothing is happening. Then God says to him, I want to give you a global view, give you a world view. And he says, when you get that, you'll see that I'm moving in the nations of the world. Right now, I'm raising up a great world power. And they're going to take you into captivity. Great pagan nation that they are. I'm going to let them, as I use the Assyrians to chastise my people, they were a rod in my hand. And when I got through with them, I removed them from this earth as a nation. And I'm going to deal with Babylon in time, but I'm going to use Babylon to chastise my people as they continue on in sin. And believe me, this man Habakkuk now has a real problem. 
Why would God, who's a holy God, why would he use a pagan heathen people to chastise his people? It's true they were sinners, but they are not as bad as the others. Now, will you notice the question, verse 12, again, "...art thou not from everlasting?" God has come out of eternity. He is the eternal God. And he says, O Lord, my God, mine holy one, your holy God. How can you use a nation like Babylon? Why, I never dreamed that. That's what was happening. Word has been brought to us here that there is this great nation that's rising down there. But I never dreamed that you were going to use them. They've been friendly to us. They sent ambassadors up to Hezekiah, and he showed them around through his palace. And he fortunately took them down to the treasury and let them see the gold that they had in that day. And, of course, the Babylonian ambassadors made note of that because they would be coming that way one of these days, and they would need the gold. In fact, they took the gold. But the thing is, this man Habakkuk didn't realize that. He didn't realize God was doing that. Now he can't understand why God would use that method. God's a holy God. Now he says, we shall not die. And he's right. (laughs) May I say to you that he says, we shall not die, because this man can go back to God's promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. His promises that he made through Moses, the promises that he made through Joshua, the promises that he made through David, and the promises that the prophets that have come before have made. God said that he's not going to let them die. We shall not die. And that is a good statement, by the way, to drop down on a great many of our amillennial friends who believe God's through with the nation Israel. God's not through with it. God has an eternal purpose with them, just as he has with the church today that he's calling out of this world. We shall not die. And thank God the child of God can say, we shall not die. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth to die. He said he did. And to die in your room in my stead. And he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He came back from the dead. He was delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification. But friends, he could say yonder to those two weeping sisters, I just happen to be the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead. Just think of that. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Habakkuk says we shall not die. He was right. They won't. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? And that today is the message of the gospel. It's something for you to believe. You're going to die someday physically, but are you dead now spiritually? And if you are, there's no resurrection of that. In other words, you'll be dead in trespasses and sins the rest of eternity. And that means separated from God, because God is a holy God, and he's not going to take sin to heaven. But he has promised, he has said, that if you'll trust my Son, I'll give you eternal life. And if you will believe that you're a sinner, that you don't deserve 
salvation and that you can't work for it, then God says, I have it to offer to you as a gift. And by grace, you're saved. You'll receive eternal life. He that hath the Son hath life. Do you have the Son today? Then you have life. We shall not die. Habakkuk is on the right track here, but he just can't understand as many of us can understand some of the performance of God in this world today. But God says you have to stand off and get a perspective of it. And you and I have a tremendous advantage. We have the advantage of the perspective of history. And we can look back from where we are to Habakkuk's day. And he, of course, couldn't see that period that we can see. But we can go back of Habakkuk and look all the way back to the beginning. We have a very good perspective of God's dealings with this world and God's dealings with the nations, God's dealing with the nation Israel, and God's dealing with this church that is in the world. So that what we have here is a tremendous statement. We shall not die. God today is moving in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He said, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heaven is high above the earth, so are my thoughts and my ways above yours. So, my friend, don't be disturbed if you're not thinking like God. You're not God. A great many men today seem to have taken that place. There are so many today that are trying to work out their salvation. They think they can do something. They think their character and their good works will merit them something and that someday God is going to pat them on the head and say, you were certainly a nice, sweet little boy down there, when actually you were a rotten, corrupt sinner, alienated from the life of God, and had no capacity for God whatsoever. May I say to you that these folks think that they're going to come into God's presence, and as we've said before, why, I get the impression they're going to say to God, move over. There are two of us now. I'm coming my way, not your way. If you come to the Father, you're going to come his way, or you're not going to get that. I think we need to understand that, friends, and we need to be deflated like a balloon with a pin pushed into it, because we are full of hot air today. We're full of pride, and we need to, as a nation, get down on our knees before God instead of trying to blame everybody else. We should get down and say, I'm the man. It's not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord. That is the difficulty today. It's the problem in the church. It's always the other member. Generally, the preacher's wrong. We are always right. But my friend, we are the ones, and we need to recognize that. And these people weren't willing to recognize that. But if we've trusted Christ, we shall not die. O oh Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. In other words, here goes Habakkuk pointing his finger. Now, all of a sudden, he becomes the nice little boy, and his crowd, they're the good guys. But God doesn't quite see it that way. I was amused. I went for years out to Flagstaff, Arizona, to the conference grounds there, Southwest Bible and Missionary Conference grounds. And I always enjoyed it, and I only wish I could fit that into my program. 
because I never enjoyed anything more than talking with the Indians. They have an approach that we don't have today, and I never shall forget what one of the Indian pastors told me. He's a young fellow, and a very sharp fellow, by the way. He says, you know, in the old days, when the Indians would raid a village and kill some of the whites, it was called a massacre. But when the whites raided an Indian village and destroyed all the Indians, that was called a victory. You know, it's interesting how we class ourselves with the good guys. And now Bacchus is putting himself over there, and he says, Thou hast ordained them for judgment. It's not us, after all, Lord, that are the mean fellows. It just happens to be those fellows over there. And, Almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. They're the ones you're to deal with. Has he forgotten that he went to the Lord and said to the Lord, Why don't you do something about evil among your own people? They are flaunting the law. They pay no attention to you at all. They've ignored you, and you're doing nothing. God says, You just think I'm not doing anything. I'm doing plenty. I'm moving And I want to say to you that God's doing the same thing today. Now, listen, here's the argument of Habakkuk, and it's a good argument, by the way. Listen to him, verse 13. Thou art of pure eyes than to behold evil. And that's true. And canst not look on iniquity. God won't. That's the reason, friend, you're not going to heaven with your sin on you. You're going to have to have forgiveness of sin. You're going to have to have the cleansing power of the blood of the Lamb. You're going to have to have a new nature. You must be born again. Even Nicodemus, that religious man, he's not going on the basis of his religion. He's going on the basis that Christ died for him, that the Son of Man was lifted up. And God can't look on iniquity. He won't look on it. He won't accept you until you're sins have been dealt with. And you see, when God forgives you, it's because the penalty has been paid. God's not a sentimental old gentleman sitting on the corner of a white cloud, weeping his heart out because he doesn't have the intestinal fortitude to judge little man down here on this earth. My God is a holy God. He won't look upon iniquity. It'll have to be dealt with before you come to him. And then he says, Why lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously? Why says you can't trust these Babylonians? Bunch of crooks. They're sinners. He was right. They were. But God's going to use them. That's the thing that frightens me. Don't you believe God won't use Russia to chastise this country? We've already been humiliated. We were humiliated in Vietnam. We have been humiliated in the Middle East. In fact, God humiliated the white man. The white man and all the great nations of Europe, the great proud nations that down through several centuries have ruled the world, all the Arabs did was just turn off the spigot. And they said, we're out of oil. We won't have any more oil for you. And all of a sudden, we all go into a nosedive. Why? Because God deals in a very interesting way. I've watched what's been happening in the world with a great deal of interest. I've come to the conclusion that God's still moving among the nations of the world, and that you and I are, I tell you, we're frightened today, but God's not. 
He's still in charge. The thing's not out of his control. He's still running it. And will you notice, "...why lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that's more righteous than he?" Now, I think that here is where this man Habakkuk stubbed his toe. I should say that he really stubbed his tongue here. He said the wrong thing. It's not the man that's more righteous than he, because they're none righteous. It's the man that's a greater sinner than he is. But God didn't say that he would judge on that kind of basis. God's going to use the Babylonians. Now, listen to this. This is one of the most eloquent sections of the Word of God, and it actually is a great section of the Word of God. And God's going to be very specific when he answers this man in the next chapter, in chapter 2. And notice what he says, verse 14 now, "...and make us men as the fish of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them." God is able to deal with men in such a way that he can make men like animals. Now, he didn't bring man from animals, but the whole point is that he's able to bring man down. And man today, because of his sin, actually drops lower the animal world. And God created him above the animal world, because when... God was looking for a helpmeet, and when I say helpmeet, one that would be fitted for Adam. He needed somebody. And so God brought all animals by him, and he named them, but not one of them could be fit for him. No companion for him. Oh, somebody says, what about the dog? No. This man needed something more than a dog or a parrot or any other kind of an animal or a bird. And so God created woman for him. And woman is just the other part of him. She's one fitted for him. She's one that responds to him and corresponds to him. And she's one that can make him a complete man, because he was just a half a man before. And he's up above the animal world. But this man's sin. And because of his sin, he can drop down below the animal world in the way he lives. We've seen that before in this. And God says here, He maketh men as the fish of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. Make men act like animals. In fact, that would be a compliment to say that because it'd be an insult to the animals because man can go lower than the animal world right today. Verse 15, "...they take up all them with the hook. They catch them in the net and gather them in the drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad." Man today can catch fish, but God can catch man. Remember, that's what the Lord Jesus said to these fishermen. You've been catching fish, that's wonderful, but I'm going to give you a job of catching men. And I think that's the greatest business in the world. Just a fisherman, that's all I could claim to be. A fisherman or a shepherd, these are very humble occupations, not a reverend. I'm no reverend by any means. That means terrible anyway. And the thing is that we're to fish for men today. What a tremendous statement 
we have here. Verse 15, they take up all of them with the hook. They catch them in the net. They gather them in their drag. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice under their net, burn incense unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their food plenteous. Actually, men think because they go down and bless the fishing fleet here in Southern California, that that's the reason they have a good catch. has nothing in the world to do with it, friends. And today, the reason that you can get plenty to eat is because God is good. That's the reason. And that's the only reason. God is good. He's the one that provides. And therefore, will you notice verse 17, "...shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations?" In other words, are you going to permit them to go on into the future, destroying people after people? And God says, oh, no, I'm going to send you into captivity down there. I'm going to chastise you. I'm going to judge you. You wanted to know, well, I was doing something. I'm doing something. Now he says, I intend to judge Babylon, and God judged Babylon. It lies under the dust and rubble of the ages today. It's a silent but eloquent testimony that God does something about evil. He judges it, even in our day. And we're going now to be able to translate this interrogation of Habakkuk into our day. Why does God permit evil? Well, I want to say the answer to that question is the cross of Christ. That's God's answer to it. Why does God permit evil? Well, my friend, he permits it and lets us go on because he's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. And he's provided a cross that there's no reason for anyone perishing. That's the first coming of Christ. Now, why does not God judge the wicked? Well, the answer to that's the second coming of Christ. He's coming. He's going to judge. Oh, you and I need a perspective. Now, let's make it personal as I close today. Why does God permit this to happen to me? May I say, I do not know. I stayed in a motel over in Siloam Springs several years ago. And where I stayed, you could throw a rock into Oklahoma. And my dad's buried over there in Oklahoma. I was a boy, 14 years old. I stood by his grave and wept. After everybody had gone, I came back on my bicycle and I stood there after he had been killed in a cotton gin. And at that time when I wept, I said, Why, oh God, did you take him? I can answer that today. Time has gone by. May I say to you, I know why he permitted it now. It was his method and way of dealing with a boy that would never have entered the ministry. And I say to you, I thank God for his dealings, but many times the question, it's a big question, Mark. So we have to leave off right there today until next time. May God richly bless you, my beloved. Maybe you don't need the review, but I sure do. So I'm going to very briefly tie up a few strings here that I trust might be helpful to us. 
And I do know that we have new listeners practically every day, and may it be helpful for them also. Now, in the first chapter of this very wonderful little book, we saw the perplexity of the prophet. He looked about him in his own nation, and he saw that there was violence, the law was broken, and it looked like God was not doing anything about it. In fact, it looked as if God had retired from the scene and had shut his eyes to everything. And then God answered this man, Habakkuk, the man that had a question mark for a brain. And he said to him, he said, you think I'm not doing anything? You have a capital Y for a brain, and that is your question? And you are wondering why I permit evil? Well, God says, I have an answer to that. The answer to that is the first coming of Christ. I'll provide a cross, and I intend to provide man a way out of his sin. And that's the reason I permit evil. That's the reason he permits it today, friends, because he wants man that want to turn from it. And any time in your heart you're sick of sin, you can turn to Christ and be saved. And the problem with man is never up in his head. Jonah's really not your problem if you're not a Christian. And your problem is not really about the inspiration of Scripture. Your problem is the Bible condemns the life you're living, and you don't like it. But any time you're willing to turn to the Lord Jesus, he'll save you. God has an answer for your why question. Now, the second is, why does not God judge the wicked, because God gave him an answer. And God says to him, now, I want you to know, Habakkuk, that I'm preparing to do something about this. There's a nation down on the Euphrates River, and I'm preparing them to come and take my people into captivity. And they will spend 70 years there. And I intend to judge my people. They're not getting by with sin. And God does judge the wicked. Now, today, I confess, I think they're getting by with it. Looks that way. But the second coming of Christ is going to be the answer to that, because it will be then the crown. He came the first time to wear a crown of thorns and down a cross. The next time he comes with a crown of glory and a scepter in his hand to rule down here on this earth. And so that was the big problem that was before this man. And if you think the first answer was sufficient, you are wrong. It raised a bigger question that this man had. And the bigger question was just simply this, well, why? Are you permitting us to suffer at the hands of a nation that's more wicked than we are? Well, the Chaldeans are more wicked. They should be judged, not us. Now, let me just pick that up back at verse 12 here. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. Thou hast ordained them for judgment. And, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction." God says, sure, that's right, but I move in a mysterious way, my wonders to perform, and I move slowly, but I move justly, I move righteously, 
and I intend to work this out, and I'll work it out according to my own plan and purpose. And now the question is, why must this happen to us? Why are we going to be judged now and not them? And God's answer is, I will judge them in time. In verse 13 of chapter 1, Thou art of fewer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Why lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that's more righteous than he? In other words, he's saying, we're better than they are, and why in the world are you going to use them to judge us? And so he changes his tune here, as you can see. And that was the same problem that Isaiah had. You remember God said to Isaiah, I'm going to use the Assyrian to take the northern kingdom. I will also use the Assyrian to scare the daylights out of you folk in the southern kingdom. And they are really going to trouble you. They'll surround Jerusalem. And God says, the Assyrian, O Assyrian, rod of mine anger, I'll use you just like a rod. But God says, when I'm through with you, I'll judge you because of your evil. He did that. Now, he's going to do the same thing with the Babylonians. He makes it very clear that he intends to judge them. Now, having given that answer to him, and it's definite and specific, therefore, God is saying to Habakkuk, and I believe, friends, that he's saying it to you and me today, it's not for you to question God. What right, friends, have you to question your maker today? What right is a little man to turn his head up toward heaven and look in the face of heaven and say, why do you do this? Well, may I say to you, to begin with, it's none of your business. It's God's business. This is his universe. He's running it to please himself. We're to believe God. I can remember as a little boy, my dad would get me up at night and wake me up and take me up in his arms, and I'd begin to cry. And I'd say, where are you going? He said, I'm going to take you down to the storm cellar. Well, it was dark down there, and it was damp down there, and it was not really a very comfortable place to be. But you see, tornadoes were in the area. And my dad took me down there. He never answered me at all. He just took up a little crying boy and took him down there and put him on a pallet. And you know, I learned to believe my dad. And I knew of a morning or during the night when he picked me up and he carried me down there, put me down. The day came when I never whimpered. I just trusted him. Now, my dad died and I was 14. I've had a heavenly father for many years since then. And there are many times that he does things that he doesn't explain to me. He took my first child, and I really, I had a question mark for that. And you want to know something? I still have a question mark. But I do know this. He's got the answer, and someday he's going to give me that answer.